It wasn't until I spent more time reflecting, going to the retreats, really appreciating how my relationship with God was really the center of everything else. It sort of gradually developed over time. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with author and executive and professor Harry Kramer, Jr. Harry, thank you for being with me. Great to be with you, Steve. Harry is a professor of management and strategy at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, where he teaches in the BA and Executive MBA programs. He's been a professor of the year and executive partner with Madison Dearborn Partners, a large private equity firm in the U.S., and he's former chairman and CEO of Baxter International, a multi-billion dollar global health care company, and he's the best-selling author of several books, first From Values to Action, then Becoming the Best, and the one we're going to talk about today called Your 168. I'm a little bit tired hearing of all the things that are on your resume, Harry, but it seems that you do find time to make things balance. Uh, Steve, I, I definitely try. I definitely try. I, I think... Uh I think everything in life, as I know you do, uh, it really t- comes down to balance and, and how do you balance all dimensions of your life. So I'm, I'm very, very focused on that. Well, let's start off with the title, You're 168, and this is not blood pressure. What does this, what does, <laughs> I hope, what does this number mean? <laughs> yeah, I hope it's not blood pressure. No, so, so, Steve, I always uh, tell folks that I was a math major in college at Lawrence University, and uh, people say, what, what's the significance of this 168? Is it most important number? And they'll say, well, I don't know what it is. And I said, well, Joe, when you're working really, really hard, really, really hard for you, how hard are you working? He says, well, because then I'm working 24-7. And I said, all right, well, multiply it out, okay? 24 times 7, if you carry the two, it's usually 168. Every one of us has 168 hours in a week. That's what you got. And, and how you think about that, how you prioritize that, uh, I think has an awful lot to do with, uh, with, with how, how you live your life. I remember once being in a church group for my congregation at home, and they said, write down all the things that are priorities. I came up with maybe three or four, and they said, and put them in order. And I put my family first, and then they said, now put down how many hours you spend on each of them. Well, I had said my family was first, but they were actually the last as far as amount of time I was committing. That was a big surprise to me. Yeah, well, it's funny, uh, Steve, you did a, a very good exercise, and you're obviously a pretty honest guy with yourself, because you've locked into what most people struggle with, right? Most people literally think about all the things they want to do, and I always have to remind them, that you're probably only going to get about a third of the things done that you really want to get to do, and people say, okay, well, I'll just go faster and faster, <laughs> and what I realized... What I realize, Steve, is they immediately confuse activity and productivity. In fact, the the thing I always ask people to think about or to reflect or pray on is, have you confused activity and productivity? You're very active. You're very active. But how productive are you? Are you moving so fast you have no idea how productive you are? And that's where I think the importance of of self-reflection and prayer come in to actually slow down, turn off the noise, get off by yourself, and ask yourself, I think, some of those those very, very basic questions. You know, what are my values? What's my purpose? What really matters in my life? 
You know, you tell a story in the book, if you don't mind retelling it, it's where a guy who really loved golf came to you and said he wasn't feeling good about his marriage and his kids. And Harry, you've got five kids and you're doing well. Give me some advice. Will you tell this story? Sure. So this uh, fellow came to me and said, Harry, you know, I've got issues with my marriage and my children. Could, could I talk to you? And I said, well, geez, I, I don't have a lot of answers. No, Harry, but you've got opinions. I, I'd really like to just chat with you. I've got all these issues. And I said, hey, I know I'll, I'll do anything for you. We all, we're called to help one another, love one another. I said, I'll tell you what, hey, tomorrow's Saturday. You know, why don't you stop by the house and, and we could uh, talk about it, sit in the backyard. And he said, well, well, I can't do it Saturday. I'm playing golf on Saturday. And I said, okay, well, well, you know, hey, Sunday after church, do you want to swing by? Well, I, I can't do it on Sunday. I'm, I'm, I'm playing golf on Sunday. And, of course, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, you know, the old math guy, I think it takes five hours to play golf. Twice, that's ten hours. Now, if the guy felt playing golf was more important than his marriage or his children, I'm not going to challenge that. But the guy seemed really surprised. And part of the reason I think it's helpful to take the time to be self-reflective is that it minimizes a surprise. It turns out, Steve, there's an awful lot of people running around that are surprised, and and I'm sort of surprised they're surprised. (laughs) Well, you talk, you use this idea of self-reflection. You really go in depth into this in the beginning of the book. Self-reflection, you say, to identify, reflect on what you stand for. So that's what you mean by living a values-based life. Right, right. Literally taking the time to slow down, slow down, Steve, and pray a little bit about and think about, okay, well, what do I know to be facts, okay? I'm here for a blink of an eye, okay? I mean, Julie and I celebrated our uh, our 40th wedding anniversary a couple of weeks ago, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, how can I be celebrate my 40th wedding anniversary if I'm only 39 years old? And then I thought, no, I'm 65 years old. How did that happen, <laughs> all right? And, and when you realize how short life is, and you really think to yourself, hey, am I, am I really preparing uh, best as I can for eternity, how many of the things that I'm wound up about, Steve, really don't matter? And it, I find it fascinating, Steve, how people can get caught up in things that if they actually thought about what they were doing, like the example that you just mentioned about the golf, you, you kind of question, would you do it? In fact, that another one, Steve, and I, I was very fortunate because I picked up a lot of these things from my dad and my, and my grandfather. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but I can remember, Steve, being a small child, and my father would say to me, Harry, have you ever seen a hearse with a coffin in it going to a cemetery with a U-Haul attached to it? And I would say, Dad, what are you thinking? He goes, well, Harry, an awful lot of people, they're collecting all of this material stuff. They must either believe it's going with them when they die, or they must think they're going to live forever. Because if you don't believe either of those, what are you doing with all of this stuff? And he was always good, Steve, because he always kept it in a balance. You know, he'd say, hey, you know, if you work hard and you want to treat yourself and get something for yourself, fine. But he said, the key, Harry, is never be possessed by your possessions. And you know, Steve, it's very easy to get caught up in all this stuff. And people are collecting. And all of a sudden, you know, they're like 80 years old and they're spending all their time trying to figure out how to downsize and get rid of all of this stuff. It's like, well, maybe you could have thought about that 10 or 20 years ago. But, you know, people are surprised. You talk in the book about how you and your wife really intentionally tried at a certain point not to change your lifestyle, that your home was fine and that the car that was six years old was fine. Is that something that worked because you were both on the same page? Absolutely. Great point, Steve. We talked about this even when we were dating, because I I tell each of my five children, none of whom are married yet. I said, you know what? 
what's more important than finding somebody that you're going to commit the rest of your life to? You really, really better make sure that the values are aligned. Again, I'm not going to make a judgment. If, if somebody feels that making a lot of money is important or having a lot of possessions are important, well, you better make sure that the person that you're going to spend your life with feels sort of the same way. You know, if you're a spiritual person and your faith is real important to you, spending the rest of your life with somebody who doesn't believe or view that, that's probably not a really good formula for success. So we spent a lot of time thinking, okay, you know what, we'll do fine, but we're just not going to get caught up in this. And literally just making sure that that's the same way we would, uh, we would teach our children. Because as you well know, Steve, a lot of people, when they're working more than they wish they did, they sort of justify it as to, oh, well, we're doing this for the children. Well, I'm pretty convinced that spoiling children and giving a lot more than they really need not only doesn't help them, I actually think it hurts them. Mm. The whole book, of course, would be worth discussing. I, we could take each chapter and do a, at least a half an hour podcast or radio show on these, but I do want to focus on the aspect of faith. But what you just said really leads into this because I was fascinated to read what your future father-in-law did to introduce you to, I think, balance and self-reflection. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was a senior at uh, Lawrence University, a small liberal art college in Wisconsin, great, great, great school. Among other things, Steve, I, I met a young woman when I was uh, in my senior year. Actually, she was a freshman. In fact, it was her first day of school. I met her. Uh, she had to check a book out at the library, and I had the best job on campus, Steve. I, I ran the checkout desk, so you couldn't take a book out if I didn't know who you were. It was a great job. So I meet this young lady. I start dating her, and uh, we started going to church together every Sunday. Just a phenomenal young woman. But I was graduating early, so she's just a freshman. So I tell my five children, they can't do this now, Steve. They can't do this now. But 40 years ago, I rationalized that I could hitchhike from Evanston, Illinois, where Northwestern is, up to Lawrence University every couple of weeks. And so I, I would do that. I would hitchhike up, and, I, and I'd visit her every couple of weekends. And that went well until her father called me and said, we need to spend time together. I said, well, super, you know, Mr. Jansen, why don't you come on down to Chicago? No, no, you come up to, to Minnesota. And I don't know if you've been to Minnesota, Steve, but, you know, first mistake I made, it was the first weekend in December, you know, 20 <laughs> below zero, the whole bit. And I'm thinking, okay, are we going to go to a Minnesota Viking game? He goes, no, 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 no. You need to spend a little bit of time thinking about your values, your purpose, how you're treating my daughter. I didn't say anything, Steve. I was pretty quiet. And he said, we're going to go on a retreat. And I said, well, what's a retreat? And he goes, well, you'll spend a little bit of time in, in silence thinking about this. He said, but there's one thing I better tell you before we start. He said, it's a, it's a silent retreat. And, of course, I said, what, what does that mean? And he goes, well, you know, you're not going to be talking for three days. And that's when I asked myself the obvious question, Steve, how, how much do I like this guy's daughter? And so I did this, and it was, run, it was run by the Jesuits, pretty intense group of guys, Steve. And they would give you things to think about. They'd say, you know, you're flying home, the plane crashes, that's it. What would you have liked to have said to your spouse or your children? You know, and if you do that as an exercise for 10 minutes, you think about it. But if you've got three days, Steve, and no, no talking, no interruptions, you just have the Bible, you know, the bell rings every three hours, and they'll give you a, a little talk, it really does help put things into perspective. And at the very end of it, Steve, at the very end of the three days, they said, this shouldn't be a one-time occurrence. You should spend 15 minutes at the end of every day doing a personal self-examination. So I thought, okay, I'll do that for a couple of weeks. I've done that, uh, Steve, every day for 15 minutes for the last 40 years. And the crazy end of the story is I married his daughter, 
And for the now, I think it's the last 40 years, wherever I am in the world, and usually when we're not going through this COVID thing, I'm out of the country at least once a month. But for the last 40 years, Steve, the first weekend in December, I fly to Minneapolis and I go on this three-day silent retreat with my uh, with my father-in-law. It's been uh, it's it's actually sort of like the three most important days of the year for me because I I think about it. Maybe you do this in, in your line of work. Most of us have a strategic plan for our organization, and then we have an operating you know ongoing. How are we doing? And I thought, well, why wouldn't you do the same thing as as a person? So once a year, I will spend three days thinking about you know what can I do to be a better father, a better spouse a better Christian, a better leader, a better teacher. And then I do my little 15-minute check-in, which uh, truly just puts, i tell you, Steve, it puts everything into perspective. It really does. So in this 15 minutes, do you have a set? Are there particular things you think about or a list you go down, or are you just being open or in prayer? How does so that work? I, I, have, I have a list. Yeah, so, so Steve, I have a list. It's in the book, but it goes, it goes roughly like this. What did I say I was going to do today? What did I actually do? What am I proud of? What am I not proud of? How did I lead people? How did I follow people? If I live life over again, what would I have done differently? And then the last one is, if I have tomorrow, being fully well aware that sooner or later I won't, but if I do have tomorrow, and I'm a learning person, based on what I learned today, how will I operate differently tomorrow on every dimension of my life? Sometimes it's 15 minutes, but it's the end of the day. So sometimes it's a half an hour. Sometimes it's an hour. It literally, and folks will say to me, well, do you do it every day? And I said, well, yeah. I mean, to me, it's a little bit like if you and I were to party, Steve, even at midnight, most of us will probably brush our teeth before we go to bed because that's a habit we've gotten into. And then folks will say, well, do you have to write it down? And I would say, I don't think you have to write it down, but I do because if I don't write it down, Am I self-reflecting or am I just daydreaming? Okay, so it, it just makes it a lot more concrete for me. I'm just guessing that besides giving you some peace of mind and knowing clearly where you want to be headed, I think this probably also improves even your physical health. You know what, Steve? You're absolutely right. It's actually fascinating. And to give you a little perspective on how right you are on this one, I can talk to any person and I'll say, all right, where do you spend more time than you wish you did in things that really don't matter? Well, the list that usually comes up, Steve, is a list that includes worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and let's not forget about stress. Yeah. And then I'll ask people, well, what do you know about worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and stress? And we'll say, well, it's a waste of time. It's unproductive. To your point, it's not healthy. But Steve, here's the key. If you wait until you're in the middle of the problem, it's too late, right? If you're upset about something, I say, hey, Steve, don't worry about it. Well, you're already worried. And where the real self-reflection and prayer come in really helpful, Steve, is I decided a long time ago, things are not always going to go well, right? Sometimes things are not going to go well. And why don't I ask myself, this may sound really simplistic, Steve, but when things are really going well, you know, live in the moment, say a prayer, have gratitude. But when things are really going well, I find that's a great time to enjoy it. But then before the party ends to say, okay, what am I going to do when, not if, what am I going to do when there's a major issue, okay? Yeah. A health issue, a loss of job issue. And what I ended up deciding, Steve, is that no matter what happens, I mean, I'm talking today. You and I don't know for sure what's going to happen tomorrow, but no matter what happens, I will try to do two things. Number one, I'll try to do the right thing. Okay. You know, what does my faith teach me? 
What do good principles teach me? Uh, the people who are my values-based people, what do they teach me? I'll try to do the right thing in an uncertain world. And number two, I'll do the best I can do. I will repeat that over and over again. I'll try to do the right thing. I'll do the best I can do. And if, Steve, if you can convince yourself of those two things, then I would argue worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and stress can be significantly reduced. You can't eliminate them, right? Welcome to the human experience. (laughs) And, you know, you have to put it in perspective. But it has an amazing ability because it literally just puts things into perspective. You start off this chapter about faith and spirituality. You call it strength at the core. Now, in a lot of, I'm guessing, a lot of business situations, religion, politics, these are sort of taboo subjects because we might disagree about them or have strong feelings about them. But you phrase it, if I can quote you here, by being open about my faith and spirituality, I can make it safe and welcoming for others to express and explore their own. You just say that if you share this as your own experience, as a helpful example, that it opens everyone to thinking about this aspect of their lives. Absolutely, Steve. Absolutely. What's fascinating to me, of course, I get fascinated by a lot of things, but what I find interesting is there's a lot of people, and I'm sure you know them, Steve, that are really good spiritual religious people, but there's this view of, oh, this church-state separation, I- I've got to be careful, I can't say, I- I've gotta, I gotta, I'll, I'll keep that for, for Sunday. And I think to myself, but wait a minute, if that's who you are, and that's a major, major part of who you are, I don't know how you can possibly separate it. So I don't separate it, but I make it very, very clear, okay, this is my perspective. This is sort of the way I look at things. How do you look at things? And I'll be very, very respectful of, of, of other people. But what I find very interesting is when students will say to me, well, you know, Harry, in reading your books, it sounds like, this comes up a lot, Steve, they'll say, boy, it sounds like you have a deep spiritual religious perspective. Do you think, do you think that's absolutely necessary to have uh, in, in order to be an effective leader? And I'll say, well, opinion, not answer, opinion, for me, it's everything. Now, is it possible for other people? Maybe, I, I don't know. But for me, it's to the core. And when you think about what satisfies you the most, Steve, they'll ask me about self-reflection. I'll tell them the story I told you about the retreats that I go on and so on. And I find it absolutely fascinating, Steve, that after every class, there'll be one or two students that'll send me an email saying, you know, I haven't been to church since I was in high school. Could could I just talk to you about this and, and why you think this is important? And I think to myself, boy, just having one person come to me, you know, I think that answers why I love doing what I do, to try to bring people a little closer to a, to a spiritual perspective, regardless. And if the person turns out that they're not interested, or they end up being agnostic or atheist, whatever, okay, uh, this is who I am, and this is, where, this, is, this, is, this is core to who I am, and certainly not anything that I'm going to separate out. Well, it sounds like the sharing and the not only sharing your own perspective, but inviting that of others opens people up to uh, this is not a contest of any kind. It's just how are we living our lives in this area? And and it's interesting, Steve. I was mentioning somebody before earlier today. If you think about what's going on in, in the country right now, and we won't get into a whole political thing, but you just look at how unbelievably bipolar things have become. And I really do believe it's because many, many people are not taking the time to have what I call a balanced perspective, to at least take the time to understand other perspectives. Many of us understand our view, 
but we don't take the time. I, I always like to quote St. Francis of seek to understand before you're understood. I say that several times a day. I seek to understand before I'm understood. So if I'm having a discussion with you, Steve, and you say something, I will try to never say, well, Steve, I don't understand where you're coming from. Because I, I actually think, Steve, that that's ignorant. If I take the time, I can understand your perspective, and then I'll decide, do I agree or disagree? And I'll actually do that, Steve, for sort of three reasons. You know, one, I think it's the right thing to do from a value standpoint to be respectful of you, number one. Number two, if you think we should go north on an issue and I think we ought to go south, I really truly want to understand why you think it's north. Because if that makes more sense than my view on south, I'm literally going to say, hey, Steve, you know what? Forget what I mentioned. I think that makes more sense. You know, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go north. And third, if I listen to you carefully, I seek to understand, and now I'm even more convinced that South makes more sense, the fact I took the time to listen to you, maybe you'll listen to me, and maybe I can change your view on something. Again, it it all sounds like common sense, and I always tell the students, I quote that uh, Mark Twain line of, Harry, you know, everything is common sense. The problem is that common sense is is not common. (laughs) You point out four foundational principles in the beginning. Self-reflection, we talked about. Balance, true self-confidence, accepting yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses, and what you just talked about. Genuine humility. That you're not forgetting who you are, but you appreciate the unique value of other people as well. I like Every that. Every single person. Every single person. And it's, it's interesting, Steve, because I'll often say, and when I mean every single person, well, by the way, people say, well, what do you mean genuine? You either have humility or not. And I said, well, there's a lot of people who can act humble who don't have uh, humility at all. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and you know exactly what I'm saying. And what I, what I find very, very interesting is when I think about genuine humility, do you appreciate, do you value every single person? person you come in touch with. And what I'll often do with, with students or even executives, I'll say, there'll be a hundred folks in a room, Steve, and I'll say, all right, show of hands, how many, how many of you, you know, really want to be a leader? And people raise their hand. And I'll say, oh, how many of you really believe you relate well to everybody, everybody in the organization? And I raise your hand. I said, okay, now don't raise your hand this time. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But how many of you know the names of the receptionist when you walk in the building? How many of you know uh, the folks in the cafeteria and the checkout person uh, at the cafeteria and how many children they have and wh- where, their, where their kids are going to school or what their favorite sports team is. Do you treat every single person the way you want to be treated? And I think you know, the reason I always say genuine is faking this. You, you really look crazy. You know, people say, well, everybody's important. And then you watch what they do and you realize, oh, no, they're not doing that at all. And so either believe it or don't even bother. That's why I never say the word humility without genuine. I wonder if I could speak personally about you growing up, because you do mention that even at a very young age, you were sort of impressed by the feeling, if not understanding the Latin and the Mass, the feeling of going to church. And then you talk about later as an altar boy, listening to, and this almost sounds like a launching pad for what you do, listening at funerals and starting to think, what would people say about me? You were thinking about that at that age, it sounds like. Is that true? <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it was, Steve. It was something about, you know, being in a church with people that have similar beliefs, that are all quiet, that are in that peacefulness, and they're, and they're listening to, you know, the priest or the minister talk, and there's such a quiet, contemplative, 
way of, of thinking. And it's like, okay, well, I'm looking at the little card and it says that this person was 80 years old and here's how they live their life. And you'd listen to somebody talk about the eulogy. And I, I literally was thinking, what, what would they say about me? What would, they, what, what would people say about me? And it became clear to me, the more I would go on the retreats and so on, that thinking about, well, okay, is it really about success or is it about significance? Is it, is it how great your resume looks? Or, you know, what people are going to say in terms of your eulogy or, or, or your legacy. And I thought, boy, that, that, that just makes a, that makes a lot of sense. And the older I get, the more clear this becomes of literally putting things in, in a perspective. I can remember, I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but I, I can remember uh, when I first started working and uh, uh, I was talking to my grandfather and I was complaining about, oh, geez, Grandpa, you're not going to believe what they're doing in the company. And he literally said to me, Harry, Harry, Harry. That's why they call it work. In fact, Harry, tomorrow when you come to the office, if there are no issues and there's no problems, you know, you, you may not have a job. So, you know, just put, put all this in perspective. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, no, that, 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 makes, that makes a lot of sense. And even when I was the CEO of Baxter, Steve, it was kind of fun. People would say, boy, you know, you got this $12 billion company, you have 55,000 team members, you're in 103 countries. You know, Harry, Harry, what keeps you awake at night? And I'd say, boy, by the time I go to sleep, nothing keeps me awake. I try not to have a whole lot of time, as I said earlier, for worry, fear, anxiety, pressure, and stress. You try to do the right thing. You do the best you can. And you surround yourself with people that have really, really good values that'll help you figure that out. All of this is either really, really complicated or it's, it's actually pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And, and literally, you know, we're, we're here, we're, as you know, we're, we're here for a blink of an eye. And then how do you want to leave the world? You mentioned just now surrounding yourself with people with good values. And you talk about not just being self-reflective, but finding those people in your life. And you say, so where will I find them? That could be in your congregation, people you meet at work. It could be, like you say, people that you talk to anywhere. Uh, you mentioned spending about 15 minutes with anyone and you can find out how self-reflective they are. Are you surprised by the number of people who are just hurtling headlong into the future and their work without any self-reflection? Oh, Steve, I mean, you ask phenomenal questions. It is amazing to me. It's a, I don't want to say I'm surprised. It's amazing to me the number of people, even very, very bright people, that are not self-reflective. And I think what it comes down to is they're racing and they're running and they're running and they're not taking the time to just figure out what are they doing and why are they doing it? And when you talk to some people, I'm sure this has happened to you, Steve, I find it very insightful. You'll talk to some people and you'll say, why are you doing this? And very often the look on their face, somebody described it to me as Mego, M-E-G-O. When you say, why are you doing this? M-E-G-O. My eyes glaze over. I don't think they even thought about why, why they're doing it. They're just in motion. And part of it is because, well, that's, that's kind of what everybody else is doing. And as you know, Steve, it's very easy to worry about, well, what is everybody else going to think? Which, again, reminds me of a, you talk about how lucky you can be. I may have mentioned this in, in one of the earlier books, Steve, but one of, my, one of the things I remember very clearly is when my parents retired, they decided they wanted to go around to nursing homes every week and perform little shows. You know, my dad liked to sing, my mother played the piano, and they put on these little shows. And I would occasionally go to these shows, and I was, it was fun because after the show, you'd be sitting around, and they'd have, like, coffee and cake, and if all of these people would be in their 80s or 90s, 
And I just found it fascinating to talk to these people. You know, they've been in the movie. They've seen the movie. You know, we're struggling with, with you know, being a teenager or, you know, in their early 20s. And I remember talking to one guy, and it had a big impact on me, talking to one guy. And I said, well, wh- you know, what did you do or whatever? And he's in his 80s. And he said, well, I'll just tell you, young fella. He said, I, uh, when I was, I don't know, 40 or 45 years old, uh, he was a lawyer. He said, I decided I didn't like the law, and I really wanted to teach. But he said, you know what? I decided I, I couldn't do that, that I, and I had to keep up being a lawyer. And he said, the reason I did that was, he said, I was really worried. What would people think? What would people think if I, if I stepped out of my law job? And he said, now let me tell you the way I look at the world now, Harry. He goes, at 85, I've decided every single one of us, including you, Harry, can divide all the people in the world into two groups. He said, the first group, if you're really lucky, if you're really blessed, could be as many as 10, 12 people. And then you got everybody else. Now, he said, this group of 10 or 12 people, up to maybe, if you're lucky, these are the people who truly, truly love you. It's your family. It's your spouse. It's your relatives. It's a couple of really, really close friends. Now, he said, when you tell these people that you've been promoted or done another job, their first thing they're saying is, well, Harry, are you taking care of yourself? Are you taking care of your health? Are you, are you having fun? Are you enjoying your life? He said, he said, Harry, these people you don't have to impress at all because they just want you to be happy. He said, now you got everybody else. Now, everybody else, they're not bad people, but most of these people are kind of focused on themselves. They don't have a whole lot of time to worry about you. So he said, when I'm sitting in this nursing home at 85 years old and wondering, what do they think? Who are these people? Who are these people? As opposed to, what am I called to do? What do I really think based on my values makes sense? What, what kind of difference can I make? And I always think to myself, the number of people, Steve, that are worried about what other people think is actually remarkable. Mm. You talked about wisdom from this 85-year-old. That's something that you mentioned in the book is Andrew Carnegie saying, as I grow older, I pay less attention to what men say. I just watch what they do. Because you have been in business for decades and teaching for a long time, is this something that has changed over the last three decades? The students that you get now, compared to when you were a student, do you see life balance issues having changed over that time? Or is this just a human constant? Um, super question, Steve, and I, I have to be a little self-reflective here to think about this. Um, something has changed, and I think things are always changing, Steve, and then when I, again, I think about balance. Some things change for the better, I think, as an opinion, and some things change for, for maybe the worse. And again, I'm generalizing. I'm generalizing. But I think in my generation, or maybe even my parents' generation, you know, there was this view of well, I got to get through college and I got to get a house and I got to get a car and I got to get set. And yeah, I'd like to be a good person and I'd like to make a difference, but I've got to kind of get my set myself settled first. And this incredible work ethic to really do this. And I, I do think to a certain degree, things weren't in as good of a balance often and people maybe worked more than they, than they really should. And I don't know if they took care of their health. I'm just generalizing. But now I think the younger generations on the good side, realize, well, wait a minute. I have a duty and a responsibility to make a difference right away. I'm not so sure I need a house. I'm not even sure I need a car. I can just take an Uber or a Lyft. And as I'm sure you've read, Steve, there's a lot more about rather than accumulating things or needing things, there's more at the experiences. And so on that hand, I think that's helpful. 
what is, in my mind, not helpful, or I, I think is a problem, and I got to be careful because maybe it's an age thing, is this whole social media where people are glued to their iPhone, their whatever their device. You talked about worrying what people think, and here's instant feedback on what everybody thinks. Yeah, and to the point, Steve, where, and this is the thing that worries me the most, I'm a fanatic about balance, seek to understand before you understood the things we talked about. And what really worries me is the way this has evolved now is I can now on social media, just basically listen to exactly what I believe. You know, you hear about this echo chamber. If all I'm listening to is just what I want to hear, my ability to understand other perspectives is significantly reduced. And one of the reasons why I'm very concerned about where the country's headed right now is that no matter what the topic, and Steve, you know, another time, you and I can talk about any topic. Most topics, you got to find some kind of middle ground, okay? But if if everything is in an extreme and the majority of people don't even take the time to understand why somebody else believes something differently, you've got a major, major problem. And I think this is true in the media. It's true on this 24-hour uh, news and so on, yes. where literally, if you happen to be left-wing whatever, you've got your sources, the right-wing got your sources. Well, wait a minute. Where's the middle ground to figure out how we come together as one people, one country, uh, one world? And I worry a lot more about that because I'm, I'm real sensitive to where we're headed if we don't get to the point where we get more balance going here. Mm. I wonder if I could focus just a little bit on personal experience, because I think of your self-reflective time. I'm wondering two things. One, was God always a given in your life? And the second thing is, what is prayer to you? Well, you ask amazing questions. I would say the first part, I guess God was a given because I grew up in, in a family that was very religious from my grandparents, my parents. But I would, I would say it was sort of um, a given, but it was almost sort of third person-like. I sort of accepted it, but it wasn't until I spent more time reflecting, going to the retreats, really appreciating how my relationship with God was really the center of everything else. And I, and I would say it sort of gradually developed over time, I mentioned that story early on of when I think I viewed it as more of an obligation when I realized that uh, when I would go to church, people would say, well, we need more priests. I think I may have mentioned it <laughs> yes. in this book. I can't remember where. <laughs> yes. Where, you know, I basically went to my uncle who was a priest and I said, well, you know, Father Francis, I said, I just want to let you know I'm, I think I'm going to become a priest. And he was so excited. Oh, Harry, this is great. You know, you've got a calling. <laughs> I remember saying, I think it was like 13. I said, I am pretty convinced I don't have a calling. But I said, you know, somebody's got to do this. And quite frankly, if any of my friends do this, it's going to be a real problem. I'm telling you right now. So, so they, and he was very good about saying, you know, hey, that's very nice of you to say, but, you know, if you have a calling, great. But what I'm asking you to do is whatever facet of your life, whatever you do, whether you're in business or teaching or whatever, you're going to be able to reach people that I ordinarily can't reach because most of the people I reach are the people that are coming to church, which obviously they, they need, they need uh, reinforcement, but I've always wondered what it would be like to reach the people. So I think about that every day. And as a result of, of going on the retreats, as a result of really being prayerful about it, that's just sort of reinforced. And when you mention, mention prayer, I, I just think of prayer 
is a growing relationship with, with, with God. You know, sometimes I'm actually saying a specific prayer, you know, in Our Father, but other times I'm just trying to have a dialogue. I will sit in my, uh, my lazy boy chair at night when I'm doing my self-reflection and thinking, you know, hey, hey, am I doing what he's asked me to do? Am I not? And if, I, and if I'm not, why not? What could I do to be better and prepare myself better for eternal life if there's things that I should either start doing more of or doing less of or eliminate or add? And in my mind, I find that dialogue to be helpful. And, and I think the reinforcement of going to church where, you know, there's something electric to me about being with a group of people in silence that often that serves as, as, a, as a big reinforcement to me. In fact, I'll tell you, the silence piece, particularly related to the retreat, Steve, I, we always have fun because I always go that, as I told you, that first weekend in December for three and a half days. And on the way to having five children, you know, Julie would always say, Harry, this is great. This is fantastic. But, you know, Harry, this year we have three children. I'm pregnant. Harry, that weekend, that first weekend in December, that's not a good week this year. I mean, could, could you go another week? And I told her, I said, honey, let me tell you something. I don't golf. There's a lot of things I don't do. That's the week I go. Well, but, but, but Harry, they do it like 40 weekends a year. I mean, do you have to go that week? And I said, but Julie, to be honest, honey, that's the week I go. That's, that's the week the 60-some guys that I go with, that's the week we all go. But being a very bright lady, she said, but Harry, you don't talk to any of these people. I said, <laughs> no, I, I don't. But they're there. And they're, I got to tell you, Steve, there's something kind of powerful because the at the Jesuit Retreat House up in um, Lake Elmo, Minnesota, where I go, they've got, sometimes they'll have like a little saying or a, something from the, from the Bible. And I always find it interesting. It doesn't matter, Steve, how cold it is. It can be 10 below. People are walking around in the snow, and there'll always be one or two guys standing by the one sign that's a, a quote from Matthew, I think, which says, what good does it a man to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? And as people are walking by, they'll pat one another in the back because you don't know what happened. You don't know whether the guy lost his job, a child died, his spouse, you know, left him. But you just give a pat in the back, and it's sort of like this reinforcement of, hey, we're all in this together, and we're all trying to do the best we can for the limited amount of time that we're here. And the Jesuit who who ran this for like literally 51 years and just recently died a couple weeks ago, Father Ed Stokel. He would open up every, every retreat by saying, you have to be silent because it's in the silence is when you develop a closer relationship with, with God in prayer as opposed to talking. And it's fascinating, Steve, because even during the lunch and dinners, you go in, you've got these eight seats around each table. Nobody says a word. And it's amazing. You can pass the bread or pass the buck, but no one says a word. And there's something about that silence that I find to be remarkably helpful. It sounds like a beautiful experience. And when I was first reading this, I thought, that sounds wonderful. And then I had this other feeling, and I was trying to decide what that feeling was. And I think it might have been panic at the idea of, <laughs> of not having any sensory input from a screen or communicating with other people for that long. But I love yeah. what you say about how every few hours the bell would ring and they give you something new to think about. And so you are right. still getting something from this after all these years, even though it's the same place and the same type of thing. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, and I take a, I take a lot of notes on what I'm reading in the Bible passages or 
when uh, they give you something to think about, I'll literally write down my thoughts on, on, on what they ask us to think about. So, mm. yeah, it's a very, very reinforcing, I would say. Maybe one final question, and I so much appreciate your time to do this, but I think this is also part of what you consider your mission is sharing what you've learned. That seems to be Absolutely. something you want to do to give back. How do you perceive answers from God or direction? Is it what comes into your mind or is it the events that happen? How do you, how do you get answers? I would say from prayer, from finding people who I learn are very values-oriented, very spiritual. Like, for example, when I was thinking about whether I should teach or not, I said, well, I, you know, I, I don't know. And they would say, well, Harry, Harry, you've got the gift of, of telling stories and being high energy level. And Harry, Harry, that impact that that could have on others to bring them closer to a, to a spiritual religious perspective, Harry, in your own way. And the fact, Harry, that, you know, you are a business guy, because most people that have been a business person or a CEO of a company, people are interested in them, but not thinking about them in that light. So you've got a perspective to share that we think could add tremendously to what, what God's calling you to do. And I thought, yeah, no, that, that, uh, that, that makes sense. And so when, when people will call me or send me a note, hey, I'd really love to talk to you about your spiritual experiences or why you do the things you do, or why is it, Harry, that you don't you know, worry a lot about materialism or whatever it is, I just get this incredible reinforcement that, you know, boy, this, this seems to be what God's asking me to do. It's I think that's a, wonderful that you have other people involved that you find people you trust, and then and you listen to them. Oh, that's really incredibly important, Steve, because when I talk about the importance of, of self-reflection and thinking about what are your values, your purpose, what matters, if you and I were having a longer discussion, I always say that's the first half. But the second half, Steve, is you've got to find people that you can share this with who can share their ideas with you just to make sure that, you know, that you're not living in a dream world. I mean, as Julie will often say to me, Steve, Harry, uh, left to your own devices, you could convince yourself of anything. Do you want to know what I think? Now, the answer to that question, Steve, the answer to that question, it better be yes, Steve, or I'm in a lot of trouble, yes. a lot of trouble. And so finding people that you can share this with that'll just say to you, oh, Harry, I know you're well-intentioned, but why did you say that to Joe? What, what were you thinking when you said you've got to have people that kind of will help you hold yourself accountable? Because we can all fool ourselves. You know, we can all, we can all uh, you know, live in a world different than what, what the real world is. Harry, a final question, and this is a traditional one for the show, which is what should I ask you that I don't know to ask you? You know, Steve, your, your questions were, uh, were so thorough, I think... Uh, Oh, you know what? I will, I will add one more, one more thing, just for something to think about. I get asked several times a day from friends, neighbors, acquaintances, Harry, how are you doing? I mean, with this, how, how are you doing? And, and lately what I've been doing is I'll say, uh, how am I doing? Well, let me think about that. Um, 185,000 people around the world have died. Almost 30 million Americans are unemployed, have lost their jobs. How am I doing? Uh, you know what? I'm very blessed. I'm doing very well. I think what I'm called to do is to help as many people as I possibly can. All I have, like many of us, I have some minor inconveniences, okay? If the, my biggest problem is I can't go to the gym and I can't go to the movies, Steve, uh, 
I don't think I have a whole lot of problems. No. Uh, there's a lot of people that have got major issues, and how can we be helpful to them, and how can we help help them and pray for them so that uh, you know we're able to uh, p- uh, potentially get through this? That's the way. That's the way I think about it. And maybe the last thing I'd say, Steve, is if I went through a lot of those questions pretty quickly, and what my students at Kellogg uh, did a couple of years ago, because I give a lot of talks for this uh, organization in Africa, the One Acre Fund in Africa. They set up a website for me with all of the questions, all the self-reflection balance. It's just harrykramer.org, and somebody can always send me a message, and I respond to every, uh, every email that I, I receive, Steve. So it's been a pleasure, pleasure chatting with you. Harry Kramer, K-R-A-E-M-E-R, Harry Kramer Jr., author of Your 168, Finding Purpose and Satisfaction in a Values-Based Life. We've barely scratched the surface of the different areas, the different buckets of life in here, but I've loved what you've said about faith and belief and connecting it to having a good life. Harry, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Great to be with you. That's our time for today. Thanks to Dr. Harry Kramer Jr. for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word. All of our episodes are online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cat Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.